Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation takes us back into the Australian Classics Book Club. Now, the Aussie Classics Book Club is a monthly exploration of Australian writing, looking back over the forgotten, the classic, the much-discussed, and the underappreciated of Australian writing. Today's book club features Elena Gugulas, editor at Text Publishing, and Romy Ash, the author of Floundering, and together we'll be discussing Joan Lindsay's Picnic at Hanging Rock. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I acknowledge the traditional custodians, their ongoing connection to the land, land that was never ceded, always was and always will be, Aboriginal land. In Final Draft, we explore the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture. In the Australian Classics Book Club, it's a chance to look back and learn more about that culture and how it influences our reading. If you know someone who loves literature, then why not share the podcast with them? Books, I mean, I just think they're always better shared. And together, maybe you can start your own book club. Discover something new and share it with someone else. Hit subscribe. You'll get a great new episode every week. Now, Picnic at Hanging Rock tells the story of a group of students at the Appleyard College in the Macedon Ranges in Victoria. The group go on a picnic to Hanging Rock on Valentine's Day in 1900. As the afternoon wears on, a group of the students go out to investigate the rock. The rest of the party rest in a drowsy torpor, that is, until one of the girls returns hysterical, for the other three have disappeared completely. Join me as we discuss and discover Joan Lindsay's Picnic at Hanging Rock. My name is Andrew Popel, and it is time for the Australian Classics Book Club. Uh, a, a monthly event, although we're, uh, we're running a week late, uh, where we go back and discover, rediscover great Australian writing, things that uh, tell us a little bit about who we are, and today is... Some some would say perhaps arguably one of one of the greatest Australian novels. We can talk about that perhaps later. But first, I want to introduce my guests in the book club. I am joined by Romy Ash. Romy is the author of Floundering, which was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Prize, as well as the Prime Minister's Literary Awards and the Commonwealth Writers Prize. Romy, welcome to the book club. Hi, thanks for having me. I am also joined by Elena Gagoulas. She is an editor at Text Publishing. She's also a regular guest here in the Aussie Classics Book Club. You will have heard her voice before, and it is always a pleasure. Elena? Hi, Andrew. Hi, Romy. Hi. Now, without uh, without further ado, uh, it's probably time to tell people the book. I did tease it last week because uh, because people like to know what's coming up, but we are talking about Picnic at Hanging Rock from Joan Lindsay, a book that... Uh, I think uh, for many people has resonances and thoughts and memories, and as I discovered, they're not all accurate. But uh, before we get to the book, Elena, can you please introduce us to Joan Lindsay? I can. So Joan Lindsay was born right at the end of the 19th century in Melbourne into a prominent Melbourne family uh, known for its participation in the arts, among other things. She attended a school that was um, much like the Appleyard College of Picnic at Hanging Rock and seemed to serve as, an, as part of the inspiration for it. She was originally trained as a visual, visual artist, actually, um, and she was married to Sir, Sir Daryl Lindsay, who, um, of course, is an artist, and she moved in those circles. Uh, her first book was written in 1936, and it was a kind of parody of uh, travel books that were really popular at the time and then she didn't write uh, her second for another 30 years really um, and that was Time Without Clocks which is a kind of autobiographical memoir 
um, if such a thing can be said to exist. Uh, and then Picnic at Hanging Rock was was published in 1967, uh, so just a few years after that, and that is remains her most famous book and indeed one of the most famous books of Australian literature. And it was adapted, of course, into the, the very famous feature film by Peter Weir in 1975. She did go on to write more books and essays and stories and novels and memoirs um, before her death in 1984. So that is Joan Lindsay, and, and Picnic at Hanging Rock is, I think, a story that most Australians, or at least most Australians over a certain age, will have a passing familiarity with. It tells the story of a group of boarders at the Appleyard College in the Macedon Ranges in Victoria. The group go on a picnic to Hanging Rock on Valentine's Day 1900 in the company of two teachers. As the afternoon wears on, a group of students go to investigate the rock only for one to return hysterical, with the others disappearing completely. The disappearance galvanises the community and a search is held, but... And well, should I say any more or, or simply, <laughs> simply leave it for the reader to discover? Because that's the thing with Picnic and Hanging Rock. It's such a well-known story, but it can also, I, I think, seem to defy knowing and understanding. Um, it has been thought to be a true story in its time. People have uh, believed that, particularly around some of the sort of pseudo-historical elements in the text. It was the subject of uh, a much-fated film by Peter Weir in 1975, and there was a, a series again last year. Uh, the mystery, I found, it, in, it invites and it confounds, and it feels like we all have our own relationship with it. Um, and if I can, if I can share, I um, for myself, I only vaguely remember seeing parts of the film when I was younger. And I have, I, I know Peter Weir's cinematic style is very dreamy, especially in the film. But, and that's, that's exactly what my memory of it is. But it's, it's mixed with that childhood. But I, I, what I do have is this most definite memory of driving each year as a child from Sydney to Geelong to visit family. That's where my mum grew up. And as we would sort of be driving around that sort of Macedon Ranges area, my parents would talk about Hanging Rock. And they would also tell us stories of how the rocks in the area would move around. I have no idea where this came from, but of course we were kids, so we took this all on faith. And so it kind of, the whole area assumed for me this aura of magic and, and something sort of sinister. Because uh, I, I would always sort of wonder, I think the story that mum and dad told us was that the rocks would move at night when no one could see them. But I wondered what might happen if you were walking at night, if you were out at night and you were nearby when a rock decided to move around. Um, I have no, this, this has no connection to the mythology of Picnic at Hanging Rock, but for somehow for me it's inexplicably entwined. Um, you can imagine this was an interesting book to read. <laughs> Do, you, do, yes. I, do either of you have personal anecdotes that make me seem a little less weird about this book? <laughs> um, I, I, don't, I definitely don't have um, a personal anecdote of that level of weirdness, although I love it so much. Uh, but I, I had a real, really similar experience with remembering the book like, and remembering the film. That It, it really, I, I just had these dreamy snatches. So when I reread re it um, again, I was just astounded by the book itself, like what it was actually about and, and how it's really about these ripples rather than, you know, this the event itself. That, that struck me as well. And um, really, I think what most people think of as the story uh, is encapsulated in that very, very early first few chapters. And then it goes into there are elements of, of adventure and mystery and... Um, 
almost sort of there's a detective element that I think you note in your introduction, Romy. What about yourself, Elena? What was what was it like for you reading or even remembering this book? Well, I suppose I have a, a weird anecdote, but it's weird in a different way in that I actually had neither read the book nor seen the film until uh, taking it on to work on it now for this edition. So I came to it completely fresh. I mean, obviously, knowing knowing the book's status in Australian literature and history and its its um, resounding influence on other books, but no, I hadn't actually read it. So I don't know if that's because I'm from Perth and maybe it doesn't figure quite so prominently in the cultural imagination over there. But um, so I read this for the first time, which seems... Uh, so bizarre to me, I'm, and I enjoyed it so much. But it also seems oddly appropriate, given that it is a book essentially about time, and that it's written in such a timeless way. I mean, you wouldn't, if you came to it fresh without knowing when it was published, you wouldn't think it was published in 1967, would you? No, it that was that was the thing, and it wasn't actually till you introduced Joan Lindsay, Elena, that I had this sort of strange flash about her own biography. And the, the book is set in 1900, so Joan Lindsay would have been four, turning five yeah. at the time of the book. And my my flashes, and I think some of your flashes you were describing there, Romy, are, are of a childhood sort of around that age, obviously not in 1900. But I wondered if, if you, you either of you had any had thought of that and this idea that 1900 for Joan Lindsay would have been a, a magical time where mystery and some of the stranger elements would have been very much alive for her. Does that have anything to do with the setting? I think, well, I think certainly you'd, um, there's, there's quite a lot of Joan Lindsay's autobiography that seeps into this book, not least because so many people were suspicious of it as, as being um, based in fact. She herself was, uh, was really fascinated by time mm-hmm. and, and had a really complex relationship to it. And she, she couldn't be, she seemed to, like, like the, in the story where clocks and watches seemed to stop randomly around the rock that seemed to happen for Joan Lindsay as well she couldn't keep a watch on or working because it would just consistently stop so and and also the fact of that all the events of the book happen on Valentine's Day which is a date that is particularly significant for Joan Lindsay it's her it's the date of her wedding anniversary uh and it was a date that figured a lot in her kind of personal um uh, narrative of her of her life uh, and then the book itself the story came out of a dream that she had that kind of coalesced into into this book that was written in a in a fever after it so I think that there's certainly a lot about probably her own early life that um, has has found its way into this book among many other things yeah I loved I loved sorry I loved learning that about her that she that she couldn't wear a watch that that time all seemed to around her. It was just so cool to think about it. I was fascinated by that as well and this this recurrence and I think Romy you were the one that actually brought it to my attention that the way people keep drifting in and out of sleep uh, makes it seem very much like elements of the narrative could be happening in that dreamlike state but again Elena when you when you mentioned it I thought wow it's she was a four or five year old child at the time of this and and so much of parts of this story have that element of a child, a childlike sort of wonder, the the dreamlike state, even even the hero sort of rushing in who's determined to to solve this. Although you know we can problematize that later, but yeah, that that just really struck me the 
that there are those childlike elements and that would have been Joan Lindsay at the time. I, I wanted to ask another, uh, not a question, but maybe sort of float a, an idea that was occurring to me. And this, again, was something that you, you really interestingly connected in your intro, Romy, so I'd love to hear your ideas. And that's the way the mystical kind of works. And the thing that really struck me in the early part of the book, and this isn't giving too much away, they're on the picnic and the four girls have, have begged off to go for a walk and explore the rock before they're there to return to, um, to Appleyard College. And they encounter the other picnickers and uh, Albert sort of, does he give them a whistle? Um, and everything is, everything is quite normal and they're skirting the river, but they can't see the rock. It's, very, it's made very clear that the rock is sort of obscured despite its, its size. And then they cross the river and there's a, a bit of a to-do about how they're going to cross and each of them in their own way. And it's, it's actually reflected back on by, I think, Albert or Michael, um, how graceful, say, Miranda is uh, versus the others. And then as soon as they cross the river they can see the rock, the rock rises up above them. And this is where things, this is where it gets weird. And it, it sort of struck me that uh, thinking back to elements of mythology and fairy stories that rivers uh, and, and running bodies of water like that actually can occupy a bit of a liminal zone in some of those more European style mythologies. And again, I don't know that we'll ever know this, but the, the, this idea that crossing the river, that was the moment that it got weird, at least for the four young women, and that Joan Lindsay was actually connecting with some of this European-style mythology in, in this new land that she was uh, sort of pointing out for, uh, in contrast with the very Britishness of, a, of the college. Yeah, when, when I think about yeah, that, that moment where they, they cross over, it almost feels like more like science fiction to me. Like, um, and especially if you read this um, this extra chapter, chapter 18, which um, was removed from Joan Lindsay's, um, removed from Picnic, Hut, Picnic Rock before it was published, but then has been published now. And, and this chapter has um, sort of some answers to the, to the mystery at the heart of the book, but they're sort of answers that are just sort of filled with all this weird uncanniness like floating corsets and and stuff that really defies like the laws of nature and yeah for me I was just like wow this is this is almost science fiction have I I've now I've now done two really weird sort of storytelling moments here does anyone want to bring this back to earth or (laughs) or dive deeper (laughs) <laughs> Let's keep going. Let's go down, Andrew. Let's I, do it. I actually well, so, so Romy, when you you mentioned that that chapter, the missing chapter in your introduction, and yeah. that that then really connected me back to this idea that was already gestating in my mind, and I was recalled back to those really early Irish mythologies, and particularly um, the wanderings of Asheen, and uh, so Asheen was the son of. Uh, Finn McCool from the, the the poem the Toyn by Cooling and and Asheen is sort of spirited off to the fairy fairy world mm. where he lives for is it something like a thousand years and he returns and I think the I think the prohibition on him is that he can return but he is not allowed to touch the earth as soon as he touches the earth he's recentered and um, he does and he immediately ages I think incredibly quickly and everyone's going to tweet in and tell me how wrong I'm getting this, this, um, this story. 
<laughs> but um, it, again, it just sort of reminded me of this idea that maybe factoring in the clocks, um, that the, the young women had moved into this space where time operated differently and they were in sort of a fairyland where perhaps they were still alive, but they were moving at a different temporal space. And we've just, I've just turned, jo- yeah, we've turned Joan Lindsay into science fiction, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> but well, maybe that's they're going to return. That, that, that's what it says. Sorry, you go, Robbie. Oh, I'm just saying, maybe we're still waiting for them to come back, you know. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what we ignored in the year 2000. It wasn't it wasn't <laughs> Y2K. Somewhere in Hanging Rock, four uh, four women, no, three women, sorry, correction. Oh, if there's a spoiler. People are going to have to read the book. <laughs> three women have just sort of wandered out strangely been rescued by Doctor Who and spirited off around the galaxy. Um, <laughs> Elena, you were starting to say about how that, that is very much uh, an, an aspect of it? Uh, well, I think, I think that it is. I mean, I think that really was a kind of um, proto-sci-fi, um, or at least a proto-Australian Gothic version of sci-fi, this book. And certainly the, um, the chapter that Romy refers to, Chapter 18, that was excised from publication uh, prior to publication and only kind of came out decades later, um, makes the mystery a bit more uh, clear in some ways and, and more opaque in other ways in that the, the the answer really is, if I can say it, I don't know if that's giving away too much, but um, that the, the girls say are lost in, in time rather than, than space. Um, so, yeah, as you say, they're, they're somewhere um, and perhaps they'll, they'll reappear. It's kind of a, a, an understanding of time that is not linear, uh, which is really fitting with the, the kind of book and the way it's written and with your experiences of it, I think, Andrew and Romy mm. and many other people's as well, that it does exist in this really weird space um, that is both of its time and, and not of its time. Can we talk a little bit about the Australian Gothic and this this figuring of the landscape and also a point that you make, Romy, which is that uh, it's very much, there's a very much a colonial lens over this and the um, there is no real presence of the traditional owners or that this this is uh, occupied land, that sort of terra nullius view, I think, um, I think you put, put it uh, in your introduction, Romy. Yeah, well, I guess um, with with white Australian fiction, there is this sort of um, process of like erasure, I guess. Um, but but I just think that this book is telling of its time, and I think um, yeah, in the book I ref, I mean, in my introduction, I reference Claudia Rankin and what she talks about how imaginations are creatures as limited as we ourselves are. So, um, yeah, so Joan Lindsay would have been, you know, writing about the world that she knew, and that was definitely a colonial world. And, yeah, this, this, it's, it's kind of a white historical novel. Do you yeah. I think that's true, <laughs> that the, the way that it engages with the land is so, I mean, it's, in a way, because Joan, Joan Lindsay's preoccupation is one of time rather than place, even though the landscape figures so prominently and so forcefully in the book, uh, her understanding of place seems to exist in this abstract realm uh, where it's it's about ideas rather than uh, any kind of engagement with, with contemporary and, you know, 
issues that actually bind us to the earth and, and the land, um, which is not an excuse in, in at all. Um, it's just, I think, uh, uh, it's really interesting to, to note it as a product of its time, um, given that it is so timeless in many other ways. I was really interested in, in ways of knowing as well, um, because it does seem like Joan Lindsay is trying to engage with ways of knowing this land in the dynamic between Mike and Albert, um, where they, they create this strange friendship uh, across their class. But Mike is very much this this lonely... I feel like I should be using his full title, but I, I got all friendly with him as well as I read. Um, <laughs> Mike, Mike is this very aristocratic um, recent transplant, whereas Albert is um, a young man who has sort of grown up on the land and that they have very different ways of knowing and, and Mike sort of almost has to drag himself up, whereas Albert is always very casual um, with the situation. He's always at ease and, and seems, to, um, seems to find Mike a curiosity in, um, in the way he kind of engages with, with, well, with everything to do with the land. And the, that contrast made uh, that, that sort of sense of the Gothic very stark to me. Um, yeah, I, I, we, if we think about when the... The novel is set as well, 1900. I think it's just pre-Federation. So, um, so we have that that this strong connection to to Britain, and yeah, My, Michael, Mike. I I kind of got quite friendly with him during the reading too. Yeah, he's representative of that. I think. I think there is a, a kind of acknowledgement there that of the the power of the landscape and that kind of um, the the menace of it as well. That even it's not said in so many words, but it does seem like Joan Lindsay is tapping into um, ideas of of a kind of um, spirit that is in uh, in the landscape inherent to it, mm. um, which I think would actually. Uh, seem to you know acknowledge that there's something deeper to it than the history of the the country as we understand it. Yeah, and that's what I found so incredibly interesting, Elena, because in in the way that I was reading, I was I was seeing some sort of lens, some sort of overlay of of these uh, mm. European, if not specifically British, mythological traditions. But Joan Lindsay was very much. Uh, acknowledging the idea that whatever it was, it was there, it existed. I didn't have a sense whether she was engaging with the fact that it, it pre-existed colonisation. Um, in fact, talking about it now, I'm I'm very much sort of reminded of the works of of authors like Neil Gaiman, uh, where and and currently watching the not sure about how I feel series of uh, of his novel American Gods, but this idea that. Um, mythologies and, and power exists in land and it can then be overlaid by the people who who come to the land. Um, this is going to go down in history as me just getting the weirdest I possibly can in book club. Um, <laughs> thank gosh it's my book club or I wouldn't invite myself back. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was. It's, but just having that opportunity to, to read it now and and have those thoughts was was really wonderful and I think it's I think I can see why it is such a well-regarded book because it it constantly invites this engagement with it yeah I think that's right and because you know I think from from my perspective the the excision of that chapter 18 was the right one um, right decision because the what gives the mystery its power is the ambiguity 
of it as well, that it's kind of what, what did happen to these girls and where are they now? And it allows for so many interpretations, so many conspiracy theories, so many ties to other works of literature and to other readings. And if you're reading it now, you can apply all kinds of post-colonial readings. You can apply some queer readings. I really enjoyed analysing the relationship between um, Mike and Albert through that lens. <laughs> the story gives so much um, and the fact of its openness is what I think allows it to endure. Yeah, thank goodness they excise that chapter. <laughs> it, this just strikes me as a book that was so before its time insofar as this would be so much fodder for social media and YouTube. This is the sort of narrative that invites scores of subreddits and videos discussing what the true meaning of it is. And I, I, it's so great that we have a chance to do this. But imagine if it came out today. Uh, it would be social media would be alive discussing this um, and some of the some of the plots and twists that we've been uh, going for here. For sure, it reminds me of um, something like Donnie Darko from quite a decade or two ago, with the kind and which was also then ruined by the director's cut. So it tells you that if you give away too much of the mystery, you ruin the story. It's true, and a young Jake Gyllenhaal would be perfect as Albert. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that was a brilliant casting, Helena, and that that might be that might be a point before we cast a really strange version of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, it is the Australian Classics Book Club. I am speaking with Romy Ash and Elena Gugulis. Uh We have been discussing Joan Lindsay's Picnic at Hanging Rock. Romy, Elena, thank you so much for joining me. That's it for this great conversation in the Australian Classics Book Club. I want to thank Elena Gugulis and Romy Ash for joining me to discuss Joan Lindsay's Picnic at Hanging Rock. Now, Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, well, I mean, you can subscribe to this podcast. There's a new one every week. But you can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, wish you happy reading.